Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. This episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our California listeners. We appreciate you tuning into the Thriving Artist Podcast and recognize that you're known for fantastic artists like Mike Stilke and Dong Kingman. Now, despite having 200% more education, less than one-third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. This gets solved with entrepreneurial training and opportunities to collaborate and organize. That's why, if you're a working artist, you need to join the Artist Federation. You can do this at theartistfederation.com. There's no charge to register, and exciting new opportunities are coming. Register and meet other working artists who are forming local chapters to influence their markets, to exchange business skills and professional support, and to determine their own professional destinies. It starts by creating an account and saying hello at theartistfederation.com. Our guest today is Alexis Clements. Alexis is a Brooklyn-based artist, journalist, and documentary filmmaker. Her writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Salon, Bitch Magazine, The Brooklyn Rail, The Guardian, Nature, and she's a regular contributor to Hyperallergic. She has led workshops and moderated panels exploring labor issues with the arts. In addition, she's been an invited speaker at Harvard University, The Flux Factory in New York City, and the Playwrights Forum in Washington, D.C. Alexis has a Master of Science in Philosophy and the History of Science from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome to the show, Alexis. Hi there. So, Alexis, why labor writing? Why why arts labor specifically? Well, I feel like a lot of people have been talking a lot about artists and income, but not necessarily always thinking about artists as workers in that particular way. And so for me, it was really interesting to look back at the history because there's a really long history, actually, of artists organizing um, in guilds if you go back centuries and in unions in the U.S. if you go back about 100 years, a little over 100 years. And so for me, it was really uh, an opportunity to look at the history and think about different frameworks in which artists work rather than just thinking about, did I get paid for that particular performance or did I get paid for selling that particular work in this particular setting? Now, you've written, quote, most reports about artists that I've seen that are based on quantitative data are pretty fuzzy when it comes to the thing that many artists would love to know. How much money do artists make from their creative work? I'm wondering if you can shed some insight on that. What is it that artists need to know that they don't know? Well, that's actually a really big question. (laughs) I mean, I think I spent a few years trying to find answers to that question. Ultimately, there is an almost complete lack of transparency about how artists make money and what the amount of money is that they make. So in the past, I would say three to four years, there's been an effort on the part of a number of different artist collectives, primarily, and individual artists themselves who are trying to access the data, so to speak, trying to get past the transparency and find out what the actual earnings of artists are, in particular, trying to understand how incomes break down, because a lot of artists do a lot of different things to pay their bills and make it through the day, and breaking down how much of that income is actually derived from people's creative work is a particularly thorny question to answer. 
Yeah, a lot of artists actually make their money uh, or a good chunk of their money from uh, from teaching and from other things that don't necessarily derive from their art. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you this. Why do you think that lack of transparency exists? And, you know, more to the point, why do we really need to know and understand what artists actually make? Right. So my perspective on the lack of transparency is very um pointed, I would say that the reason for the lack of transparency is because it provides a mechanism for artists to be exploited. Um, that's a pretty pointed response to that, um, but it's based on a lot of time reading, talking to artists and thinking about this. I mean, on a larger level in the United States, and that's the context that I can really speak to, In the United States, there's an enormous amount of shame around money, and particularly when people aren't earning a lot of it. And there's also shame around excess money. Um, So in the arts world, you kind of have both meeting up against each other. You have people who are spending enormous sums of money to purchase artworks, um, and there's often you know, if you watch an auction happen live, if you've ever been in the room, enormous numbers of the very um, top, sort of the people spending the biggest amount of money are calling in on the phone. They're not even there in the room. And part of the reason to do that is to hide their identity. And then at the very bottom, a lot of people are ashamed to talk about money because they think that they're the only ones not making any money. So that sort of shame and the and desire to hide wealth contributes to an overall culture in the US that drives people away from sharing things about money. It's super taboo. I mean people say don't talk about money or excuse me, people say don't talk about religion and politics with your family, but I would say people are even less likely to talk about money. And so that taboo, that cultural taboo is a huge reason that we don't talk about money in the arts or any other context. But in my experience in particular in the arts, the lack of transparency provides a platform for those who are offering opportunity, so to speak, to get away with not paying people because nobody really knows who's getting paid and who isn't. And so that transparency provides a mechanism or that lack of transparency provides a mechanism for people in power to exploit artists. So it's it's those two things acting together, I would say, both of which contribute to an artist being in a position of not really having any leverage, not really knowing where they can negotiate from and not really understanding what the real dollar amount is. Like if you walk into a museum and you are really keen to ask for a fee, but you don't really know what's reasonable, you may ask for a fee that's far too high. And because of that culture of shame around money, you might get a really negative response from somebody. But because you don't know what's going on, it's really hard to figure out how to enter those conversations and how to negotiate on your own behalf. So it's really interesting. Um, you're talking about benchmarking um, in any other field. You know, I work with a, a company that does benchmarking around logistics. Mm-hmm. So 
if um, if you ship a lot of heavy freight every year, whether you're Toys R Us or you know your McDonald's and you're shipping beef back and forth, if you spend a lot on freight, um, it's helpful to to benchmark to know what are other people paying, what rates are they getting, what volume are they churning out? Exactly. Because without that, you can't negotiate effective rates, and so benchmarking and and rate negotiation tend to go together. Without that, you're sort of fully dependent upon the shipping carrier to dictate to you what they're willing to give you. And of course, they always assert, hey, this is the best you're going to get. This is what it's going for these days. You have to sign this contract because no one's going to give you a better deal. And they've kind of got it locked up. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a perfect overlay for what you're saying. I want to make a couple of other points. Normally, I don't do a lot of the talking in the show. But in this case, I need to say that to you, Alexis, that you're in an incredibly safe space to go ahead and be pointed with these matters. Because uh, on previous shows, we definitely talk about artist dependency and the forces that keep artists dependent uh, and powerless and disempowered around their own economic destinies and financial and entrepreneurial futures. And also, we've talked extensively about the shame around money, specifically the mythology that artists need to be poor, that if you're not a starving artist, you're in it, you're too commercial, and you take flack from that, even from our other artists. And the shame around making too little money, that you're, you're judged by the money you make. Um, people think if you don't make enough money yet, it isn't a business problem that somehow goes to the quality of your art. And this is why we, we teach entrepreneurial skills at the Clark Hewlings Fund. It's so that we can solve the business problem uh, for those whose art is economically viable. But you do find people asking way too little because they don't benchmark. They're not sure what they can get away with. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely why we help to bring into existence uh, the Artist Federation, which is an artist uh, founded an artist-organized organization of individual chapters across the country that get together and share this information and collaborate on how to strategically increase their wealth, their business position, and their negotiating power. So I just want to say that you are not only welcome to be as pointed as you would like to, but I almost think that your, your couple of minutes at the top of the hour here are a whole show in and of themselves. They're, they're fantastic. I almost am ready to hit print. Just put that out. That's all they need to hear. So I'm excited to have you here, Alexis, and, and interested to, to hear what else you're going to say. And I'm going to ask a follow-up question then. Mm -hmm. If we knew, if there was industry-wide benchmarking on what working artists actually make, uh, would we be shocked? So I actually, I'm glad you brought up benchmarking because as somebody who looks at the arts across fields, I know well that there already exists benchmarking in a number of fields. For instance, if you're a composer, um, there is a, an association of composers. It's, the name of it is, I'm blanking on at this exact moment. But if you go on their website, it'll tell you, okay, you want an original film score? Here's the minimum amount that you should expect to pay. Um, there's other organizations that have very similar benchmarking for the fees, and this often crosses over into areas of the arts where unions are involved. So Actors' Equity, the Writers Guild, there's lots of different organizations that actually, or different fields within the arts that do actually have effective benchmarking to give both artists and the clients, let's call them, of the artists, or the people who are commissioning work from the artist to give them a sense of what they should put in their budget. It's actually the visual arts that's one of the areas that has the least amount of benchmarking, as far as I can tell. 
But it's really interesting because in the past three or four years, there have been two really important developments in North America that have helped create benchmarking. So I'm going to talk about that, and then I'm going to answer your question, because I actually have shown these benchmarks to a bunch of visual artists, and I can tell you <laughs> what their responses are. But the first, the first benchmark in North America that I'm aware of in terms of the visual arts specifically in the contemporary, sort of in our day and age right now, is uh, an effort by Canadian artists to alter copyright law. It's a, it was a really, really savvy move on their part. They got copyright law changed in Canada such that if you um, exhibit or, or commission work from an artist or use wor the work of an artist, you have to pay a minimum fee to that artist. And the minimum fees are embedded into that copyright law. So if you look up the organization CARFAC, C-A-R-F-A-C, and that's both the Canadian and English crammed together in an acronym, um, but if you look that up, you'll find minimum fee schedules for a solo exhibit, for being part of a group exhibit. So those are all there to be found and actually really illuminating. So in, uh, here in New York, an artist by the name of um, Lise Foskeline, she started the organization Working Artists in the Greater Economy, WAGE is what most of us know it as. And she used those minimum fee schedules from Carfax to try to develop something for the U.S. context. And essentially what she's created, and now she's had a number of people helping her over the years that she's been working on this, Essentially, what she's tried to create, because changing copyright law in the United States is, let's just say, a long-term goal, but not a short-term reality when you have corporations like Disney, who are really ultimately driving a lot of the copyright conversations in this country. But in the short term, what Wage is trying to accomplish is to certify galleries and museums and other art organizations, have them be certified that sort of wage certified. In other words, they agree to abide by these minimum fee schedules. And then there's a group of wage artists who sort of agree to preference working with or pay attention to organizations that are wage certified. In other words, it creates a minimum expectation of payment for the artists who work with those organizations. And there's a really clever piece to wages approach, which is they sort of have a sliding scale. In other words, if you're a really small artist-run uh, gallery that doesn't have a lot of money, they're not going to expect you to pay what an organization pays who has $10 million in their annual budget. And so those fees actually give visual artists in the United States a little bit of a picture of what they could start negotiating from. And that has existed now for about, I want to say, five years. I think they put the minimum fees to together in 2012. And they continue to expand the program. They're working to certify more galleries and, and arts organizations as we speak. So yeah, so there is some benchmarking work being done. And I can tell you from having shown those numbers to artists, they're surprised. 
I'd have to look up the exact number, but here I can actually have it in front of me. The, for instance, if you were to show um, in an organization with a budget over $10 million and they were wage certified, if you were to have a solo exhibition, your minimum fee would be $10,000. So we all know how much work goes into a solo exhibition. That's years of work, years of labor, years of material. Um, even if it's all brand new work, you know, there's a whole life that led up to that moment. And you're going to put it up, show it for a few months, and the minimum fee that you could expect is $10,000, which is obviously not enough to live even for half a year in most places in the United States. So the kind of money that people are looking at earning is not the kind of money that is going to pay someone's bills, generally speaking. You know, um, I had a, a friend that um, was a musician and uh, it, he's passed on now, but but he was a blues musician. And he always made the point, um, you know, people would ask him to play coffee shops or whatever, and and uh, they would get around to talking about money, and they would say, can't you, can't you play for free? We don't have a lot of money. We can't pay people. You're doing this for the exposure. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we get a lot of working artists on the show, and they talk about the fact that increasingly they're having to say no. Mm -hmm. uh, emerging artists ask us, how often can we say no? Because they get an incredible number of appeals to do work for free. Mm -hmm. Museums ask them to donate a certain number of paintings a year. Um, other people ask them to donate for charitable causes, donate their work. And one artist said on our show that up to 25% of her output is earmarked as um, unpaid artwork uh, that she's sort of expected to give. And, and that even sort of her gallerist is involved in sort of, you know, pushing that this is necessary. And of course, the gallerist makes money off the sales, but the gallerist is sort of getting the publicity also off of the free labor of the artist. And the artist is at the bottom of this funnel. They're what you, everything you talk about, the, the dependency. Mm -hmm. My colleague, my friend, who was the blues musician, he had a standard response to uh, the, the coffee houses and, and venues that would say, hey, can't you play for free? He would say, when an artist works for free, he takes bread out of the mouths of other artists because he makes it okay to work for free. He makes the expectation that you work for free and he strengthens the argument that you have to work for free. You have to pay your dues. And so he would say, at a minimum, I'm going to make some money off of this or no deal because I'm letting down the other artists. And, you know, he used to, of course... He was very much an Arlo Guthrie type of organizer, labor union for artists type of guy. Mm -hmm. He was as close to a teamster for, for musicians <laughs> that I ever, I ever met. But I, you know, that leads me to ask you more, a little bit more about wage and what you're talking about. So you mentioned wage and in your writing, you've cited the 2010 survey by wage, mm -hmm. uh, which is again, for our listeners, working artists and the greater economy, uh, which is uh, a New York based activist organization. Uh, and this study in 2010 is famous. It shows that 58% of artists surveyed were paid nothing while exhibiting their work in New York City. And you've communicated with artists showing at the Whitney Biennial who were not paid. Mm -hmm. And so um, have I run the gamut in my earlier description of why artists are working for free? Or if not, why are these artists who are showing up at the Whitney Biennial, who are showing in major venues in New York City, that other artists really want to be the future of the career. Why are these artists working for free? 
Well, that again is sort of a show in and of itself. It's a it's a big question. Um, you know, I want to say one thing that's really important, which is. Well, I totally respect the point that your musician friend is making and in many ways completely agree. What I want to say is that artists are operating in multiple economies at once. You know, there's a lot of the art where it is where we're working with people who actually have no money themselves or we're working with galleries that are not where nobody in the gallery is getting paid. And we're also often bartering with friends. We're bartering with fellow artists to create opportunity or we're collaborating on something in a context where nothing is actually gonna get sold, for instance. And then we're also sometimes working in a completely sort of capitalist framework, right? We're working in a in a in a gallery where things are being bought and sold and there's contracts and there's sort of very clear monetary agreements. And so my perspective is that if you're working in an environment where money is changing hands and you're working in an environment where other people are making money, as your musician friend is pointing out, where other people are making money off of your work. You absolutely need to advocate. You need to understand the economy that you're working in there, and you need to know how to negotiate and have power within that situation. But that doesn't mean, in my perspective, you should bring that to every single economy and every single context that you're working within. Again, I'm thinking about across the arts and even the artist friends that I have just down the street from me. If I were to come in with a contract and demand that instead of bartering and instead of doing something that isn't going to get sold with a friend, we have a contract and we figure out a way to get paid and I'm only going to do it if that's the framework, that takes something away from the art, right? The arts is not only a product. It's many, many things. And so that's a subtle point, but I think a really important point, because I think that a lot of people, especially folks who have come up through the higher education system, are entering the art world in with a mindset that being successful in the arts means making a living from the arts. But the reality is that an enormous number of people in the U.S. and the world make art, consume art, engage with the arts, and money isn't really the objective for them. And it's not actually part of what their, part of their goal in creating art. So it's really important to understand the difference there. I mean, I think the Clark Hewling Foundation has a very particular objective in terms of that economy, artists engaging in the economy of the arts that does involve the exchange of money. But there's, you know, a vast world of the arts that isn't focused on that. So it's a subtle point, but it is one that I think is important to pay attention to. Well, you're, you're definitely being, right. You're definitely yeah, right that ahead. our mission is uh, 
you're definitely right that our mission is uh, to serve working artists, which we define as mm -hmm. an artist who has uh, sold some work, has economically or commercially viable art, and um, is interested in growing their professional practice um, and becoming a contributor to the economy. And that extends to uh, a lot of different directions, including even, you know, being a job creator, et cetera. So, so we are focused um, entirely on that. There are artists, uh, as you say, who uh, make art for the love and, um, you know, more power to them. Uh, I can't afford to do it, <laughs> but, but I, you know, well, I, I know that they exist. That many of the, I would argue that many of the artists you work with, I don't want to diminish it. It's not art for the love. I don't believe there's such thing as art for art's sake. Um, but there's a lot of parts of the arts economy. And again, I'm thinking of this coming from um, outside of the visual arts field. There's a lot of work that people are making. And I find this more and more to be the case with younger artists who are not interested in engaging, in engaging with the marketplace. And that's okay. And there are a lot of artists who are, have feet in both. And that's also totally fine. Um, and I think the point I'm trying to make is just to understand the difference and understand that in one context, we should absolutely be negotiating and understand all the deals that need to be made. But in the other context, it's also okay to sort of say, you know what, I'm actually this work, I don't want to be in the marketplace. And that's okay, too. But, you know, I think there's a difference between a political and social stance. It's like saying, is it okay to be gay or is it okay to be Republican? I don't, I think it's a bit of a straw man where no one here is saying that it's not okay to make art, not make art, sell it, not sell it, do it for any reason that moves you, et cetera. But when we talk about working in different economies, we are inherently talking about engaging with the market, are we not? No, I disagree. Yeah, no. So how I do think, you engage in a how do you engage an economy and not make any money? Well, there are let's go with the example that most people know, barter economies, where it's not necessarily about making cash money or exchanging money for a good. It's about exchanging goods and services for goods and services. Um and there are a lot of artists, including many artists who make a lot of money from their work who engage with in barter economies with their fellow artists. So that might be one way of describing the difference I'm trying to articulate. Oh, okay. So yeah, I, I think we're on a semantic difference. So, I mean, even Clark Hewlings, for which the Clark Hewlings Fund is named, um, he, he bartered art. Uh, in fact, some mm -hmm. people made out really, really well because the, the value of that art, um, grew dramatically over the years. Um, but you know, he was able, able to barter to, to get things that he needed. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not distinguishing between crypto economies, barter economies and financial economies. To me, I'm, I'm basically saying it's a marketplace. Um, I thought you were talking about essentially giving the work away. Um, which, again, is okay. No one's knocking it. But when we talk about economics, we are talking about an exchange of value for value inherently, even if it's not cash. So let me ask you this, though, um, because I, I do think at the risk of, I don't want to mute what you're saying, and at the risk of, of staying on this issue, which, which could be semantic, um, I think that to, to go back to benchmarks, you, you've made an interesting statement. You, you wrote almost everything about the way 
that artists' work seemed to defy typical practices for collecting labor and earnings statistics. So again, here you're talking about earnings. Why do you why do you make that statement? Why do, why does the way artists work defy typical practices for collecting that data? Maybe that sheds some light here. Yeah, I mean, I think in some way it draws on some of the conversation we were just having. Um, artists don't, you know, labor statistics are built with the assumption that I have one job and that I derive all of my income from that job. And the reality is that artists very typically, certainly not the majority, but very typically artists are earning money and participating in lots of different economies, as I said, and earning, um, yeah, they have a lot of different ways of bringing money in. And some of it is even under the table. That's very common for a lot of artists for a variety of reasons. And so in a sense, there's a sort of, I don't want to say shadow economy, that's a little, you know, too pejorative or nefarious, but there's there's a lot that artists are doing that never appears in labor statistics for exactly that reason, because we know that the way that people report their income on, um, you know, tax forms, it doesn't fit sort of the way artists, a lot of artists make money and spend money doesn't fit easily into those tax forms. And ultimately, it's the tax forms that are telling us most of what we know about people's earnings. Well, you know, I don't mind the term of uh, shadow economy, but you're basically saying there's an unofficial uh, unofficial economy, and that includes things like uh, barter. Um, I Don't get me wrong, we don't want to get in trouble with the IRS. We're not suggesting that um, there is, there's no IRS rule about tracking bartered value, but we're just saying that a lot of this takes place. Um, and I don't know if there's a rule or not. If I trade you a chicken for a loaf of bread, do, do I have to report that? <laughs> you know, I'm not a tax guy. I don't know. But, yeah, nor, nor am I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but uh, I find it interesting. You're suggesting that um, one reason that there is there are these unofficial economic channels. You, you said earlier, artists work in multiple economies at once. And, and so now I'm getting some clarity what you mean. It's not just, well, I, I paint and I teach, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a cliche. And um, it's like the uh, the English professor who's also writing a novel. Right, right. <laughs> the, uno- the unofficial economy includes a variety of different things. You're saying mm-hmm. there's a richness to the economy that isn't tracked by right. conventional labor statistics because of what we designate labor and right. we as labor and, and what we designate as income. And we had that for years. You know, it wasn't until I think three years ago that the labor uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics started tracking the contingent workforce. They mm-hmm. used to regard um, contract labor as not labor, not, exactly. not tracked in the same way. And now, finally, when 46% of some enterprise companies is contingent labor in one form or another, freelancers, contractors, uh, outsourced organizations, etc., um, they kind of have to do it. The force is here that it's kind of the new work. And yet the artist community is kind of behind uh, in this. And I want to ask you, the degree to which artists themselves, you know, this may be an unpopular thing to suggest, so I'm asking, it's just a question, but do artists themselves contribute to this, um, this opacity of being able to see into it? And the, the reason I'm asking, Alexis, is because um, I see artists who express confusion, perhaps even shame, 
about sell, making a certain chunk of their money off of things like reproductions and museum swag and other things. And they'll say, well, that's not making money off their art. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, Elizabeth Hewling saying, that's absolutely making money off your art and your, <laughs> your creative endeavor. What are you talking about? Why are you ashamed of that? There's how many artists would love to uh, see their art, you know, <laughs> uh, sell so well that, you know, you got to buy the reproduction because mm -hmm. you can't afford the art anymore. You know? right. So my question to you is, do artists contribute to this? Is shame a factor here too? Or, oh, absolutely. Or, or am I missing something? Yeah, no, absolutely. I just gave a talk a few weeks ago and was trying to talk about the two primary myths of success in the arts. And the two primary myths are in order to be successful, I should make all of my money from my creative output alone. And number two, I should spend all of my time on my creative output alone. And they're complete myths. You know, as much as I can, you know, the the data is not rich. It is not, um, there's not a lot of it, but the data that you can find indicates that even what I call sort of the 1% artists are making huge amounts of money off of things like licensing deals or secondary businesses or investments. You know, this is how people, the art market is in, intensely unstable. It is intensely variable for an individual artist. The, the two statistics that I have um, been able to find about how free, like how, over the course of a career, how many good years am I gonna have in terms of money? And the, um, from labor statistics, it's 2.2 out of 16 years. I don't know. I don't remember how the percentage breaks down. But two out of 16 years, basically, you're going to have really good years. And another artist estimated it to be four. So let's say somewhere between two to four years, you're going to be doing great. And, you know, in terms of my friend group and some of the artists I know, that actually bears out. You have a really good year. You get all the grants. You get an award. And then the next year, you don't get any of that. That's reality. That's how it works. You don't get career retrospectives at MoMA every year. You get one. And that means that the ways in which your income comes in from your, if we're going to try to, you know, if people are going to be really strict about it, you know, me selling my artwork is the only thing we're going to say that making that money is, that money is incredibly variable. And so you have to have something that builds stability, even if you're sort of the one percent the artist, because even for those artists, there's enormous instability in the art market. You know, maybe for the 0.001%, there's not instability. But for everybody else, there's enormous instability. So, so to get back to your question of sort of like who contributes to that, that myth and who contributes to creating the idea that, um, or sort of, you know, downplaying the secondary and tertiary ways we make money. Absolutely, artists are a part of it. Absolutely, shame is a factor. And absolutely, capitalism and sort of the American system and all of the stuff that I talked about earlier, the ways in which money functions in the United States, is the reason for the shame. 
it's the reason that we think that the only way to be successful as an artist is to make our living from being an artist. When all indications are that virtually none of the artists around today and even for the past hundred years have ever been able to sustain like a bill paying income over the course of their life from their art making alone. You know, we talked earlier about benchmarking and you know, one of the things you do when you do benchmarking in any other field of business is you benchmark across industries. You mm -hmm. don't limit things to just your industry as though yours is the only industry facing the same thing. And as as I listen to you, I'm kind of amazed because I think, well, um, and, and I, we run into this in our education program at the Clark Healings Fund. Why do you really think that artists are all that different from the rest of from other industries? Because in other industries, you know, it's kind of a common thing. Heck, it's in the Bible, seven lean years, seven fat years. You know, you got to prepare because not every year is going to be a banner year. And the examples, the real estate market, which crashed, the banking thing, which crashed, the, you know, there, there are these bubbles and they fatten up and then they, they shrink down. But this, this is solved by partly not putting all, all of your investments into derivatives, not putting all your eggs into one basket. And so you're kind of underscoring something that, every industry tries to do, which is diversifying its income streams, not making its money off of all, all off of one volatile um, bet or assumption mm -hmm. and having sort of multiple irons in the fire. Um, so I like that. I think what you're doing is you're sort of applying a principle of economic strength for anyone in any industry um, to artists. And it, it always just amazes me that that uh, that that's not the built-in assumption and of course it's it's one of the things that we try to instill in people as part of the business training that we do i'm interested though you you know you use the word success i was a little surprised because you were talking about success as an artist and it, i mean it's a loaded word right what mm -hmm. what constitutes success and it could at the risk of having us come full circle and circle the drain around this issue of why why people make art you know i think we tend to look at success as um, sustainability. And, um, you know, again, this goes back to the economic side of it. And I guess you could define each individual. There could be as many definitions of success as an artist as are individuals. But given the unsustainability, the financial unsustainability of basing an art career on doing free work and spec work and the need to kind of diversify and prepare for the, the 14 out of those 16 years or the 12 out of those 16 years that it's not a banner year off of just selling paintings or sculptures. What does a sustainable career in the arts look like? What what do artists need to do to ensure um, that they can diversify, that they can ride out the years happily, successfully, and joyfully, um, that they're not necessarily in a banner year? Uh, another big question, right? Because as you, you know, <laughs> uh, I... You know, I talk about success. I'm going to I'm going to sort of pivot for a second, but hopefully return to your point. The reason that I talk about success is because artists have um, are in a particular problem. In terms of, you know, you're comparing art to other industries and the product we want to be a little more crass about it, the product that an artist is making is not in demand in the same way that food is or in the same way that computers are. They, art 
you know, we can, again, we can have a philosophical debate about art fulfilling a, a deep need within humans. I think that's true. But I don't need your art to fulfill that need. I can make my own art or I can trade art with other people who don't um, where I can barter. You know what I mean? Like it's not the the reality is that while arts in some way are, are very corollary to other industries, the product itself is tied to the person and the demand for that person's product is highly variable and will always be deeply inconsistent. And so the reason I talk about success is because artists and their work are really tied to an artist's self-worth. In other words, like, so I, whether or not I believe I'm a success, sorry, I'm like trying to find a good way to put this. Essentially, if I think I'm not a success, I often think I'm a failure, right? If I'm an artist. And the reality is that failing to sell is very different from personal failure. You know, I'm, I make this point in an essay by way of oh, a great um, thinker on this particular subject, Esther Robinson. And she makes the point over and over again that it's really important to separate personal failure from systemic failure. And the reality is that artists go into this looking for people to receive their work. And if we all buy into the idea that reception of my work equals monetary payment, a lot of people are going to feel like failures. And over and over again, I encounter artists who do feel like failures. And that gets back to that first point about shame. I feel ashamed because I didn't make any money. And therefore, I also feel like a failure. And so what it ultimately gets back to is that sense of shame and people not being paid. And time and again, we also find that people from marginalized communities are the ones not getting paid consistently. And so you end up with a huge part of the arts world feeling like a failure and feeling shame around the fact that they're not making money when in fact it's a systemic failure. It's a system that doesn't reward those people with money. And so really what, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about success is challenging people around that idea of success so that they don't tie their personal self-worth to whether or not they're making a buck from their art. Because it's really tricky when you tie your self-worth to your monetary earnings. So that's sort of like one point. And then the to tie it back, remind me exactly where you, what was your question? I want to make sure I tie it back to your question. Oh, I, I just asked what a, what a sustainable career in the arts looks like. Right. So, yeah, right. So the point of me talking about success is actually in many ways to get exactly at that is to to think about the ways that success changes depending on what your definition of sustainability is. So, for instance, I think that success is getting to keep working. That's it for me. I just want to be able to keep working. And so, in a sense, that's my answer to your question of sustainability. What do I need to do to work, whether or not I get money from that work? And that gets to diversifying my 
chuckle portfolio. I like to joke with people, you know, you have to have a lot of different ways of bringing in income exactly as we just talked about, because some years you're going to have a good year and some years you're not. I, I think it's fascinating. You've got some sage insights, regardless of whether one is an artist or, or not. Um, you talk about not tying your, your self-worth to um, sales success. Now, that's different from not going after selling. Um, exactly. But, I mean, I, I own a company where, um, you know, we've funded it ourselves, we're self-funded, and we haven't been able, multiple businesses, we, for this one company, we haven't been able to um, to sell. Uh, we've got some sales, we're working, we've got money coming in, but it's not, it hasn't exploded the way we, we thought. Now, is that a judgment on whether or not we have a good idea? Um, not really. Uh, we think our idea is stellar. We just can't seem to connect with the market the way we'd like. And so we're at the point now of, of taking on venture capital and, and getting some help to do this uh, and bringing in people that know how to, how to complete the rest of the bargain. But it makes me think if we were to look at some guy like Van Gogh, you know, not a success in his lifetime or Charles Babbage, you know, the guy invented the, the first digital computer in the, in the 1800s and everybody laughed at him and said, we don't need that. And he died poor and and unfamous he's not credited with that and if we looked at that is that a commentary on his idea not really um so i kind of I, I get what you're saying and i i suppose um i think that's why it, it's probably important to define what as you say what sustainability is for you and i love that your example is my favorite um you know, that it's the ability to keep working. Cause I think a lot of people are like, well, I'm, I'm successful when I'm famous. I'm successful mm -hmm. when I can retire off the proceeds of my art and live 20 years without working. And I always think, um, whether that's, you know, a commercial type, uh, you know, whether we're selling widgets or whatever, you know, I, people ask me about a retirement fund and I say, it's not a retirement fund. It's an old age fund. Retire. What are you talking about? The, you know, the last generation that was going to retire, retired already. But we're going to, we're going to be lucky to keep working all our lives. And, and, you know, if you retire, you, you die quick anyway. So, you know, the goal for me is to keep working. And I love that you're saying that the, the privilege is the work itself, the ability um, to keep making art. Uh, we're going to shift in, into uh, the second segment of the show, which is um, organizing efforts for artists or um, artists being able to organize and um, collaborate. It's such a loaded word, organize. Before that, I want to say to the audience, if you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. A portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. You can share this commitment with us at clarkhealingsfund.org slash donate. That's clarkhealingsfund.org slash donate. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Alexis, you're critical of the tendency of academic art education programs to foster competitiveness, siloing artists off from one another, or at least that would seem to be a takeaway from some of the things you're writing. So why are those things a negative mindset for working artists? I think for me, the biggest problem, if I can sort of turn that a little bit, it's actually exactly related to what you say. But I think for me, the biggest problem is that higher education in some settings, not all of them, but in many settings, treats education as a vocational program in a certain way. 
And what that creates is the expectation that graduates of those programs are going to go off and get a job. And it's going to be a good job. And that job is going to be the job of being an artist. And so it creates an expectation in graduates that, again, sort of gets back to some of the points we've made, which is that I should go out and basically be able to earn a middle class income from and benefits from my art making. And all indications are that that is far from any reality that any artist, working artist who we've been able to find in the data is actually, you know, experiencing. The group BFA, MFA, PhD did some analysis on um, some census data and found that artists with art degrees uh, in New York City have a median income of $25,000. That's generally not what most people would consider to be a middle class income, certainly not in New York City. And it's you know, not really enough money to cover benefits, things like health health insurance and cover rent and cover food in a way that sort of a middle class expectation would would want you to to cover those costs. So for me, it's really treating the arts as a vocation, like you would treat being an IT manager or being a carpenter. The arts doesn't work like that. And so it's a false expectation for graduates to go off out of their career services office and think, oh, I'm going to go get a job doing this. That, I think, is probably the thing that I focus the most on in my critique of higher education. But of course, part of the takeaway there is that sort of competitive well, if I get this job or I get this opportunity, you're not going to get that, you know, this very zero-sum game mentality. I was just going to say it sounds like a zero-sum mentality, that there's only so much pie. And it's it's disappointing mm-hmm. uh, to think that art academia instills that, that thought process in people. Um, you know, and I think being a working artist is a lot more like being an athlete or a mm-hmm. singer. You know, when Junior says, I want to be a basketball player or I want to uh, I want to be a uh, an R&B singer. It is the statistics are, <laughs> the, you know, the average guy makes a dollar because there's mm-hmm. so many guys making nothing. Uh, yeah. And there's just a tiny, tiny subset making a lot. So it's either a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, but there's, mm-hmm. there's not that much in between. And, uh, you know, it, I, I think presenting it like a job is scary, but mm-hmm. it's odd, isn't it? Because I mean, is it your impression? I guess I have a couple of questions. One is it your impression that part of the reason this occurs is that um, academic art education does not focus on on business skills or entrepreneurial skills or what it really takes to form, you know, the the professional side of the career aside from, you know, making the art. And how can artists actually counter this instilled narrative that they're getting uh, in, in art academia? I mean, I think there are a lot of people sort of doing real serious analysis of the higher education market, but my outsider perspective is that, um, and I've seen reports from different arts or um, sort of arts undergrad groups, like one for, focused on the performing arts and another focused on music, where they they really um, they're trying to justify the expense ultimately. You know, these are incredibly expensive programs 
And also that's the way the rest of college works for a lot of people. You know, you convince somebody to spend $150,000 on the promise that they're going to have a job when they get out of school. And part of what a lot of schools are selling you when they're selling you the package is that they're telling you the career services department is reporting how many people are working in that field when they graduate from that school. Another statistic that the um, BFA MSA PhD Collective published, which I thought was kind of interesting, um, is they they say that, well, only, I think it's less than 10% of arts graduates end up as working artists. And on the surface, less than 10% seems like, wow, that number is pretty low. I wonder, you know, what's going on there? And it got a lot of attention because it does seem like a low number. But I kind of chuckled to myself because I happen to have a graduate degree in philosophy. And God help us if everyone who graduated with a philosophy degree ended up being a philosopher. I imagine that the number of philosophy degree earners who become philosophers is far lower than 10%. So I kind of, you know, I want to challenge that statistic a little bit. And in some way, I think, I hope that that addresses your question in the sense that I think that there's value, there is value in learning about the arts, learning about craft, learning about technique, spending time with other people interested in learning more about an art form. But the problem is that people are pretending, and we kind of all know that it's not true, people are pretending that everybody who's in that program is going to go on to be an artist. That's the problem for me. I think if we had richer conversations around what the value is of educating ourselves and sort of what the framework should be for paying that for that, that would be more productive than necessarily treating every artist in that program as if they were going to become a professional artist because it's sort of selling people a bill of goods. On the other hand, I've, I've given workshops on this topic to people in graduate school in professional programs, programs where those people have some experience and have um, an expectation that they're going to pursue this as a profession. And absolutely in that environment, they should be getting way more than they are. I am not a visual artist, and I, I've, I happen to have worked in a couple of visual arts galleries, and I'm, I'm shocked by what I hear sometimes. They, they aren't having conversations about how to price their work. They have no idea that galleries discount work. They have no idea who's marketing their shows or what the expectations around promoting their work is when they're doing an exhibition. I mean, on and on and on. It's staggering what they're not learning in a professional track. So I, I'm kind of cheating by saying, you know, wanting to have it both ways. But I think particularly in under, undergraduate programs, treating an undergraduate arts degree as a professional degree is a really slippery slope because the vast majority of people who are there are not going to become artists. And I think sometimes by, by selling it as a professional program at that level, they're in some way justifying the incredibly shocking um, price tag that that education comes with. I'm going to quote one more BFA, MFA, PhD statistic. Um, 
I can't remember exactly how they put it, but basically, I think nine out of 10 of the most expensive undergraduate degrees in America are at art schools. There's something wrong there. Like what, what bill of goods is being sold that that's acceptable? You know, uh, gosh, I'm glad you're on the show. You're on the right show. Uh, obviously, you know, at the risk of sounding like I'm, I'm selling something I'm not. Um, heck, we give it away. But the, <laughs> you know, this issue of the, these are the reasons why the Clark Healings Fund has its education program. These are exactly the kinds of gaps we fill in the things that we teach. In fact, that issue of not dealing with pricing, it's our number one ask. Um, mm -hmm. we, we have an event coming up uh, April 6th and 7th in Santa Fe, um, the Art Business Summit, where we are actually um, dealing with that as one of the, the major topics. We're, we're trying to fill gaps so that artists can understand how to price uh, their work, um, not only competitively, but, but certainly in a way that um, gives them the lifestyle they want. And, you know, there are middle-class artists. I know middle-class artists. Mm -hmm. uh, there are artists whose incomes and lifestyles I vary. Uh, they can buy cheeses I can't afford uh, or that I envy. They, you know, uh, but, uh, but it is not, you know, it is like being a singer or an athlete. It's not everyone. And, and I think what you're arguing for is candor. When you talk about mm -hmm. selling people a bill of goods, you're making a case for candor. Um, I have a colleague mm -hmm. that went through a college um, and he was told his program was cybersecurity. And he was told that when he got done, he could work for the CIA or the NSA, that his, you know, he would be in incredibly hot demand. And he got out and he found that there were um, 10 times more people with cybersecurity uh, mm -hmm. certi certifications than there were jobs available in cybersecurity. And that would have been a simple research um, uh, action that he could have taken before signing up for the program. And, and mm -hmm. it simply would have been something that the college could have represented accurately and said, hey, there's a risk. You'd have to really be top of your class and really shine. But instead, they, they misrepresented it. And in okay. fact, um, it has become a thing now that increasingly people in all fields are suing their universities and their schools for uh, one breach of contract, two fraud and three negligence for mm -hmm. representing that there are ready jobs available. If you just get this degree um, placement mm -hmm. is there and, you know, almost guaranteed a job and almost guaranteed to make a certain level of income and they're being held accountable. And some people yeah. are even not having to pay back their student loans because of that misrepresentation. That is a case for that. It has become an actual uh, a thing that um, mm -hmm. it's it's like getting a writing degree uh, or a master of fine arts in creative writing. It doesn't mean you're going to be Stephen King and be a even make a living off of uh, off of being an author. Um, so yeah. I love what you're talking about that um, that candor um, is critical and that um, you can't rely on academics to do it for you. Although that doesn't devalue what they do teach. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you. Um, you know, we, we're talking about organization among artists, you know, and as you know, uh, we mentioned early in the show, uh, at the beginning of the show, the Artist Federation, which is an organization um, of artists, of local chapters of artists who are banding together to sort of collaborate and solve these kinds of problems, which sort of leans the other way mm -hmm. from what you're talking about, which is the negative mindset of competitiveness, the zero sum game. There's only so many pieces of the pie. If somebody takes one, you know, there's none left for me. Uh, and siloing artists off. It's the exact opposite. Um, it's exchange of information and, and exchange of insight and skills and so on. 
And there are actually a lot of artist unions in the United mm -hmm. States, but nothing yep. as, as say, big and visible and successful as something like the Teamsters. You know, you don't mm -hmm. see uh, where's. So why is there no Teamsters union for working artists? Why hasn't that arisen? Well, you know, I would push back a little bit on that because it varies dramatically across the arts. Um, and there are unions for artists um, that are fairly strong and robust and have been for some time. Uh, the first one that first two that come to mind are um, Actors Equity and Stage Actors Guild. Um, SAG, uh, those two represent film and television. Oh, yeah, actors yeah, I'm sure. Actors. But I, I mean, visual artists, uh, I should say, uh, sure. why, more accurately, why is there no Teamsters for visual artists? Um, you know, again, I think that it has a lot to do with the particulars of the economy that visual arts work within. Um, you know, the ways in which visual artists get paid and the ways in which their work is in demand is very different from a lot of other artists. And it goes back to that highly variable, highly unstable marketplace for the work of individual artists. Um, in order to have leverage as an employee, you need to have demand for your labor that is consistent and strong. And the reality is that that has never really existed in the visual arts unless you go pretty far back. And you can go pretty far back because they did exist. There were painters guilds long, long time ago itinerant portrait artists, landscape painters in various countries. I'd have to, you know, pull out my history books to quote the really good, clear facts on that, but they did exist. Um, they set prices, they had benchmarks, um, they were a closed shop. If you wanted to get a portrait, you had to go to that guild and get your portrait. But that's because the demand for that product was stable and clear and strong. And without that stable, clear and strong market, there's not as much leverage. And because the, the laborers in that marketplace are many and they are not necessarily as cooperative with one another, which is part of what you're getting at with organized artists organizing with each other, um, there's, to use a union term, there's a lot of scabs. There's a lot of people who will work for free. Um, and that will always be the case and has always been the case outside of those guilds. Um, so I don't think that there's a chance that we're going to change the marketplace of the visual arts in a way that gives visual artists as a whole a strong sense of um, leverage in that way. Like we can't create a closed shop the way unions can where everybody in the shop has to be in the union. But I do think that what's really important is the work of groups like Wage and like what Clark Ewing is trying to do and what other groups I've talked to and heard from are trying to do, which is to, to collaborate with each other, to be transparent, to share information, and to benchmark, in a sense, a lot of different aspects of their work and be transparent with each other about those benchmarks so that when you are approached, you know what your point of leverage is. You know where you can start the negotiation. 
You know, yeah, and I think the the Film Actors Guild, you know, FAG is is a uh, a better example than the the Teamsters Guild. And you're pointing out, or the Teamsters Union, and you're pointing out that it's the nature of the demand itself in our economy um, that there's not a steady demand for visual art in the same way. And the nature, like, you know, we got to fill a certain number of movie slots each season in order to keep people going to the theaters, but there, there's not, uh, or, or to keep people buy, paying their Netflix subscription, but it's not the same thing with visual art. And there's also, um, there, there's a variety of different economic models. By the way, mm-hmm. just uh, to zoom back in history a little bit, it is an interesting point. Um, you know, Florence was um, the great explosion, the great renaissance of, of uh, painting as we know it now, really. And uh, painters back then belonged to the guild of doctors and apothecaries because mm-hmm. painters bought their pigments from the apothecaries. And sculptors mm-hmm. were, were members of the masters of, of stone and wood guild because uh, obviously where they got their materials or they were um, they were members of the metal workers guild if they worked in metal and so mm-hmm. yeah they they had these guilds and the reason i'm bringing this up is is not a history lesson per se but it seems to me that um the model should be working better by now you know uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with initiatives like the artists contract and you can google that phrase if uh, mm-hmm. if you don't know what we mean but um, the artist contract guarantees a percentage of future sales, which is a huge thing when artists turn over, you know, our second most common uh, request in, in our education program is is not, and, and it's partly artist designed, is um, the first is pricing and the second is rights and rights mm-hmm. to the art and copyrights and trademark. What what rights can I give away and how do I negotiate in a contract and, and give away only the rights I want and so on. And it it also relates to this issue of secondary sales and future sales. Mm-hmm. So my, my question is, um, why aren't initiatives like Wage and the Artist Contract and various artist unions more, more fully publicized? Why haven't these efforts really taken hold like a wildfire? And why is it that you could have these things in the Middle Ages and you could have them in Florence in, in the height of the Renaissance, but now um, there seems to be a complete lack of awareness uh, among many artists and a, a lack of interest uh, in some sectors in this or, or a worry that to do this will alienate you from the market. I guess I maybe I'm answering the question. I don't mean to, but I, I hear people terrified of what their gallerist will say. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I would point out that, in fact, in the contemporary moment, there are working models. Um, I'm not uh, well. So there's. CARFAC, which I mentioned earlier, where Canadian um, artists and legislators changed copyright law. Um, in the UK, I'm aware of um, of a law, and I I can't pull the specifics up in my brain. I need to look it up on the internet, but essentially, I can't remember if it's writers. I want to say it's playwrights. Mm, I'd have to look up the exact, but essentially, I get when when my work is appears in the secondary market i get a salary and then everybody else gets to take in other words i get my earnings up to let's say let's pretend it's sixty thousand dollars and i get that cut first and everybody else doesn't get to take their cut until i get that um and there is actually legislation that has been drafted in the united states that sort of comes up every now and again that relates 
to artists earning and resale that an artist should get a certain amount of money in the resale market, a percentage. So it's not actually, the models are out there, they exist, and there is potential for them to be implemented. I think the, the larger question is what's preventing those things, what's standing in the way. And I think, you know, the question of trying to change copyright law in the United States would be a good example. Uh, I think many artists, particularly visual artists, will be at least sort of vaguely aware of copyright law in the United States because it protects visual images and other kinds of imagery and, and copyrighted um, intellectual property. The copyright law in the United States has been altered almost entirely by major corporations, with Disney being the first one to sort of fight for that change so that they could retain ownership of their intellectual property for longer so they could make more money from it. Um, the monetary pressure against meaningful change in this area is enormous. And without monetary resources, it's very, very difficult to make meaningful change. And it would have to probably be at the, at the legislative level for it to be nationwide. So, you know, I think it's, I think the potential is there. There's this piece of legislation sitting with Congress that could be passed. Um, and artists, I mean, I think it gets back to the power of artists organizing. The reason that that piece of legislation was even drafted is because there's a constituency of artists who demanded it. And so that gets back very neatly to the point about artists organizing and understanding that they are a constituency, that by collaborating and by communicating and by participating in professional organizations for your field, you are becoming an important body politic that can influence change. And I think, you know, if, if the question is why hasn't it happened yet, it's precisely because artists, particularly visual artists, think of each other as competition rather than colleagues. That's interesting because, you know, as you were citing Canada and the UK, I was thinking, well, yeah, but the elephant in the room is the U.S. and uh, mm -hmm. and I was wondering why, and you kind of hit on it. There, you know, there it's the nature of intellectual property law, IP law, in the U.S. that mm -hmm. has served yeah. obviously major motion picture houses and studios uh, in a way that um, has had to be countered with um, actors guilds and so on, and which which also mm -hmm. um, has not been reflected in. In, in a similar reaction within the visual art market in terms of its um, mm -hmm. how it's enduring that yoke. And visual artists don't exactly, in the U.S. at least, visual artists don't have a powerful political lobby. In fact, when you talk about legislation being right. in front of um, uh, Congress now, I think this Congress <laughs> right now. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, good luck. You know, I mean, uh, I, hate yeah. to, I hate to throw uh, fire on the water, but I, I just... Uh, yeah, it's it's not exactly like there's there are these enormous champions out there, um, and mm -hmm. and that's the thing is this is just isn't common parlance. And again, you know, so so mm -hmm. many visual artists are terrified of what 
um, their gallerist will say, or will I get blackballed? Will I get, uh, will mm -hmm. I not find anybody to work with? Um, so it right. has all the earmarks of, um, of a labor slash union story. <laughs> Hence we're talking, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's potentiality. Hence it, it, um, it's like going back to the 1920s, uh, and factory workers and, and seeing sort of their situation of dependency before they organized. And I, and I want to say, though, within that, that, like, a lot of people will hear a labor union and be like, yeah, right, they're never going to happen. And to some extent, they're right. You know, I, I'm not going to pretend that labor unions are in a fantastic position in the United States today. But I do think that there are some interesting models and some interesting ways. And we've seen that, actually, with contingent labor. We've seen that with freelancers at a local level demanding legislative change so that you know, you brought up that the IRS didn't even recognize these people as workers. And so by building a constituency, even if your constituency is like my friends in Brooklyn who are visual artists and talking to each other and then understanding how you can tap into other groups, the Artist Federation, Wage, your local, you know, if you're, let's say you are a glass artist. So you become part of the Association for Glass Artists. Each of those ripples out connects you to people who then connect you to the wider world that shows you, well, you may not think of yourself as a freelance worker or as part of the freelancers union, for instance, here in New York. But if you join up with that, here's the way to benefit yourself. So ultimately, to use a very old school world word, what we're talking about is solidarity. It's unlikely that visual artists today, right now, are going to change their position in legislation this month, let's say, <laughs> right? Like, there's no legislation, as you point out, that Congress is going to pass that's going to help improve the payment structure for a visual artist this month. But there are a lot of efforts that will help contingent workers healthcare being one of the most readily um, debated topics that would dramatically improve the conditions for all contingent workers in the United States, inclusive of artists. So it's understanding the fact that you are a worker, you work in a particular set of economies, and by aligning with other workers, including people within your own field, you have a better sense of how you can actually affect change that will benefit you. Let me ask you this. We, in sort of a related but pivot topic, we sometimes hear the criticism that the art market benefits the few stratospherically big artists and relies on advertising, promotion, agreements between dealers and auction houses, but actually has little to do with art. Um, if that's so, or if it isn't so, um, what's the point of artists organizing? What are the goals and who sets those goals when you have this sort of monolithic um, thing, foot on your neck, if you will? Well, another huge question, but I think the answer is ultimately because it makes life more livable to know that there are other people who are in your position on a very, very human level if every artist thinks of every other artist as competition and that the only way to succeed as an artist is to make all of your money as an artist, that's going to be 
you're gonna have a pretty miserable time of it if that's your the perspective that you have on the visual arts marketplace and like your position within it it's like i had a a friend you know tell me a long time ago basically you know the equivalent for uh visual artists would be like if if your only idea of success is to get a career retrospective at MoMA and that's it, then you're very likely to never succeed in life. And so, you know, being, <laughs> trying to reframe things for yourself on a very literal level is going to make your life a tiny bit easier to get through because you can trade notes with somebody else. You can find out what they think about that. You can realize that, you know, hey, maybe it is better if we work together on this rather than treat each other as competitors. Well, you're singing our song, uh, you know, that's why the Artist Federation exists. Um, just a handful uh, of additional questions, one more or two more in this segment, and then we'll finish up with um, just uh, talking a little bit about philanthropy. So where can, if, if at all, where can organizing efforts improve? Oof. I uh, keep asking you these giant I mean... <laughs> questions and, you know, it's on purpose. <laughs> I don't ask you the small questions. What time is it? This is why we have you. So, yeah, I know. I feel that it's a big question. <laughs> we try to pack a punch. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Like, I feel like I was stumbling on some of these a little bit earlier oh, because no. they're kind of gargantuan. No, no. We yeah, try to pack a punch in this show I... and pack a lot. You're doing fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um the I don't even know where to start with that. Honestly, I know so few artists who even think that way. Honestly, I really think like it is such for it. You know, I don't think the problem is necessarily with organizing models necessarily. I really think that artists haven't even considered it. Many artists, I mean, I give these workshops, I have these conversations, and it's like, like, I'll give you a, a sort of crass example. I was giving a workshop four years ago, and I was talking about, you know, the importance of organizing, the importance of building alliances with other artists, and then on top of that, the importance of solidarity. Like, if you want, you know, I, people may be aware that art handlers, um, have been fighting to unionize and fighting to get better pay. And here in New York in particular, there have been a number of um, art handlers who tried to um, unionize. And A, a lot of artists work as art handlers. A lot of the people that I know who are art handlers are also artists. And B, having solidarity with people who work in your field is really important because ultimately then those people will see that you care about them and in turn, they might help you out. But so I gave these examples of, you know, this is something you should consider thinking about. And somebody in the back of the room was just like, you know, well, why should I care about other people? And I think phrased the question exactly like that. <laughs> and I sort of took a step back and I, I was, you know, my response was literally like, if you don't give up bleep about them they're not going to give a bleep about you and that's really it like i find that 
within the visual arts marketplace, there are a lot of people who are very politically engaged. There are a lot of people who have a view outside of that world, but there are a lot of people who don't. There are a lot of people who are very focused on themselves and their work and their career, and that's it. And the idea of working with another person or even talking about money with another colleague is just, it's not only not in their, you know, it's not a possibility. It's like, it's like anathema to them. It's like a, oh, I can't do that. It'll hurt me if I do that. So on some level, the visual arts marketplace in particular suffers this because of because that's what capitalism wants us to do. You know, I'm going to be pretty blunt about my politics. Capitalism wants us to isolate so that we can't organize. Capitalism drives people to think of each other as competition so that we don't say, hey, I'm making $23,000. How much are you making? You know, to compare salaries to find out that we're being discriminated against. This is one of the biggest problems in trying to figure out if there's wage discrimination is people don't talk about their salaries. And in fact, in some places, they're punished for talking about their salaries. Well, you know, it's fascinating to hear this, this issue of, of self-focus and the sheer strength of this zero-sum doctrine, the exactly. idea that if I take a piece of pie, if somebody takes a piece of pie, there's less for me. Um, it totally ends the notion of collaboration. Mm -hmm. You know, we started the Artist Federation. We we borrowed a note from uh, Business Networking International, BNI. They they have a great phrase, um, givers gain. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we've touted that and pointed to them as an example for how artists can uh, can organize. But you have to invest in other people mm -hmm. in order to reap the rewards for yourself. And, and really all organization, all unions, all all collaboration is is based on the same model. It's been pretty good for us. We're seeing, you know, uh, a growth of about um, 50 people signing on per day uh, at this rate. I'm sure it'll it'll taper off, but yeah. <laughs> you know, at some point it'll slow down. You know, there's only so many people, but uh, at, but it's been good. I, but those um, people will talk to other people. I mean, that's, that's, right. that's the goal. Any successful organizing model, you've got your core people and they go out and tell other people, hey, look, this actually made my life easier. This made it easier for me to negotiate. This made me understand what that discounting scheme was that the gallerist was doing that made me not get any money when my work was sold. Right. Well, and also the, you'll spot them really quickly. Like, you know, I used to be a member for several years of, of BNI, uh, and it was, it was very good for me. Um, however, mm -hmm. you know, no, you can have a doctrine of giver's gain. It's like having non-believers in your church, so to speak. You, you can have people show up mm -hmm. who, oh yeah, giver's gain, but they're clearly just there, uh, to take, 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 and you spot them really quickly. And, yeah. and so that will be one of the challenges artists face is to understand who, who are the best collaborators with them, and it will be the givers. I I wonder, you know, mm -hmm. um, just to finish out this segment with one more question, and then I just have just I can count on one hand the questions. We're gonna milk you, Alexis, for as much. <laughs> this is so good. This is one of my favorite shows so far. I sent a note out like you've got to hear this, you know, while literally while you're talking, I was like, oh, I can't wait to the next thing she says. But I, I ask you one more question about this, and then I just want to ask a little bit about philanthropy. So, um, you know, I'm concerned that. Uh, I don't know if you see this phenomenon, but I certainly do, 
uh, a colleague and I just before this show were talking about how the term project manager has been commoditized and it's it's seen as a little down market and so it's like the word writer nobody wants to to really be seen as down market and commoditized and you know readily available mm-hmm. and cheap but visual artists um, see, strike me as as being seeming a little down market until they make it. You kind of hear this attitude toward them, like they're, the public perception of them is um, they're not the Elon Musks of the world. They're not the Bill Gateses and the Mark Zuckerbergs. Mm-hmm. They're, they're seen as pretty darn down market. And I wonder if that perception mm-hmm. is something you've seen and if it um, if that perception of creative labor in general as sort of lesser labor um, has influenced um, the the rate of compensation, since that's partly what we're talking about. Well, I, you know, I still, I, I guess from where I sit here in Brooklyn, I would see actually the opposite problem in a certain way. I think that the, you know, this whole notion of the creative economy um, has borrowed the chips that artists earned and tried to spread them to other fields. Um, you know, I think, I think most people that I know, I mean, maybe this is the point you're making though, that, you know, it's only the artists they admire, but most people I know have artists they admire and think of them as innovative and insightful. I think most humans respond to art because it is, insightful and it strikes chords or it shows them new possibilities or it mixes things up in exciting ways. And I think most humans understand that that is a form of innovation. It's part of why we love the arts. It's part of what makes the arts so important to our culture. So I actually am skeptical that the, the, the inherent value of art is not understood in our society. I guess I would say that what what has happened is the proliferation of of the creative economy has cheapened the understanding of what creativity really is. Everybody wants to wash themselves in creative soap and say, look, I'm creative. I am a freelancer and I make pretty things. So I'm part of the creative economy and, and now corporations are adopting that, you know, we could get into a whole conversation about the fact that they're just using it as an excuse to make huge portions of their labor force contingent. (laughs) You know, that's a whole other conversation about late stage capitalism. But I, I think that, you know, my observation would be that the conversation around the word creative in particular has actually cheapened the value of, um, everybody is calling themselves an artist, right, these days, or everybody is calling themselves creative. And in fact, everybody can be an artist and everybody can be creative. That's true. Uh, but when when we use that in a, as an excuse to destabilize labor markets and treat people as expendable, which is my observation of what's really happening, then that, in fact, devalues everybody's labor regardless of the work they do. Because essentially making it sexy to be a contingent worker, but what that ultimately means is that as a contingent worker, you have no benefits and no stability. 
So they've sold us a bill of goods to use a phrase that I've, I've belabored a couple other times, but essentially that's what's happened is the creative economy, quote unquote, is an unstable labor market that cheapens the value of somebody's work. Well, I, I just want to um, point out the nounification of the word creative, too. Um, so now you kind of commoditize mm. people by we're creatives. Uh, <laughs> it's almost like you can round us yeah, up right. and put a, you know, slide a, a food tray under the, the door once in a while. And we'll growl and eat it and go back to work. We're the creatives. <laughs> you know, we're over here. Right. It's like every, it's, we'll work it's like, 24 hours a day. We have names, you know. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> But all right, so about philanthropy, um, you quote a National Endowment for the Arts report. Uh, the time has come to insist on an obvious but overlooked fact. Artists are workers. And yet you say the same report adds that only 2% of the NEA budget goes to individual artist grants. Why, mm -hmm. why does that discrepancy exist? Oof, all right, here we go. <laughs> Another one. I'm loving this. Sorry, I want to do I, this to you all day long. <laughs> I think about this question a lot, and it's very hard to tell a short version of the story, um, but essentially it starts in uh, with Barry Goldwater trying to get Ronald Reagan to defund the NEA as his first act as president in 1980. Um, and good old Charlie Heston being on the committee, being one of the people who said, you know, we tried, but we just can't, we just can't do it. We just can't get rid of it. <laughs> but, you know, basically people have been trying to um, get rid of the NEA for a really long time. And uh, people will know, hopefully some people will have heard of the NEA four and the culture wars in the United States um, that came about, uh, it became, Basically, the AIDS epidemic and rampant homophobia in the United States became a convenient excuse for them to revisit the defunding of the NEA because the NEA was funding a lot of gay artists and a lot of politicized artists at the time. And um, the culture war wars essentially resulted in the dramatic diminishment of the NEA's support for individual artists. So there's very specific and very large political reasons why that is in the state that it is in right now. But in terms of, you know, where it is now, it sort of gradually gets chipped away. I think everybody, I hope everybody listening to this knows that basically every year, particularly when there are right-leaning people in power, the, the discussion becomes, okay, let's defund the NEA. Our current president suggested it very early in his tenure. It's sort of an annual tradition. And then the usual suspects sort of trot out and brush off last year's testimony before Congress and make their arguments. Um, but essentially, the NEA, the value of the NEA and the people who come forward who win the argument these days are from states that don't get a lot of attention. Because for them, the only funding and some of the most significant funding, arts funding that they get in those states comes by way of the NEA. So in New York State, for instance, my home state right now, the NEA's contribution is important, but it is not in any way, shape, or form the majority of the arts funding, whereas in some of the other states in the United States, it's a crucial piece of the puzzle. So that's sort of a really roundabout, sort of short version of the story, but it, it's a complicated mess that actually 
has more to do with politics and less to do with the way that people value the arts in the United States. Because in fact, for so 1980, for I was born in 1980, for my entire lifetime, they've been trying to get rid of it and they haven't succeeded. So that tells me that people understand that there is an inherent value there, but then we're fighting over the pennies. But maybe your question was actually focused on something specific and I got lost in the history because it fascinates me. No, but I was, I was going to say, wow, so you really didn't hold back in that one. <laughs> I must have struck a nerve. <laughs> so anybody that started listening at the beginning of the show, I think the first thing you said was, well, this is going to be a little bit pointed. And <laughs> I said, this is a safe space. At the end of the show, you're like, Daniel, I'm, I'm running out of gas here. I'm going to say whatever the heck comes I'm to mind. I'm just going to tell you what I really feel. <laughs> Yep. That's well, what's happening. So, um, a couple more and then we're done. So, uh, yeah. You also write, quote, everybody keeps shifting the responsibility of sustaining artists, the real lifeblood of the arts, to some other group. Uh, so, mm -hmm. in light of that, who's really responsible for what artists get paid? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, all of my long-winded answers to your last question and this question are connected because essentially what a lot of philanthropists and the government is trying to do is distance themselves from risk. Art is unpredictable. The kind of content that we really crave and want in art is often very provocative. And funders, uh, particularly in the nonprofit world in the United States are excruciatingly risk averse. The nonprofit world in the United States is actually was created in the 1960s. I'll spare everybody the history lesson there. But what's really important is that it was created as a way specifically to depoliticize the money. So there's, you know, nonprofits can't actually actively engage in advocacy as nonprofits. People will correct me and say there's all these PACs and da 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 da. Yeah, I'm sure. But the people who are primarily giving money to artists are operating in sort of this politically sanitized space. And, you know, we all know how scandal and how sort of the culture of politics, especially on the internet, works today. And people are terrified of taking risks, particularly people who control large amounts of wealth. And they want work that they can trust. They want work that suits their particular perspective on the world. And that makes it very, very difficult for artists to access money to generate genuinely provocative work. So in terms of who is responsible for funding the arts, it's a really, really big question. Um, you know, if I were to say that I think society is responsible for funding the arts, that's a loaded response that could be interpreted in a lot of different ways. You know, I, I certainly don't have a pat answer and I, I don't have like a three point plan to write in an op-ed to say we need to do this, this and this. But there are some really simple things that have happened in at a local level. Again, you can see models where, you know, small taxes are levied on the local constituency to make the local museum public. And that museum makes a point then of supporting artists 
who are local of making work that is speaking to that community in its full diversity and not just to one particular segment of that community. You know, when there's community accountability and arts organizations are responsive to their communities, I think those are really successful funding models. And I think that looking for models where the community decides how money will be, uh, you know, that tax, I guess, is a particularly compelling example. Obviously, the word tax is incredibly loaded, blah, 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 in the world today. But the reality is that I think there's lots of things that we should be providing for our citizenry, and art is certainly one among many. You know, I could go on, but obviously things like healthcare and education and housing go along with that. Well, you you could go on. This is why we have you on the show, because your ability to go on is so cool. I'm going to only ask you two more <laughs> questions, though, I promise, and then we okay. will wind this up. Uh, some shows go longer than others. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, as soon as this one started in the first 30 seconds, I was like, oh, this one's going long. <laughs> so the the first question is this. Uh, two questions. One of them is, um, how could philanthropy look if um, we were more attuned in philanthropic uh, organizations and pursuits to actually benefiting working artists? What's your prescription? Um. You know, I think that it's hard for me to come up with a particular prescription because I don't know the context, you know, like arts is a really big word and covers lots of fields and lots of different communities. I think that some great models that I've seen in terms of philanthropy lately involve people pooling resources together rather than um, individual funders, because I think that the nonprofit system in the United States like the visual arts marketplace encourages nonprofits and funders to think of each other as competition and think that they need to put their personal mark on things. So I'm gonna call this the Alexis Clements Museum or the Alexis Clements Foundation, and I'm gonna have a very particular perspective and I'm only gonna focus on that, even though there's 76 other, you know, very similar foundations that are doing very similar work that aren't collaborating with each other. So I think finding, particularly in the nonprofit foundation and philanthropic space, finding ways for people who have access to that kind of wealth to collaborate and not compete and not demand bespoke, um, sort of like it has to be mine and it has to look like me kind of ideas about funding. I think that would be a huge step in the right direction across the nonprofit world. All right. And last question, as promised, have your views changed over the course of your career? Constantly. <laughs> One word. Constantly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Alexis, uh, this has been fantastic. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. For more information on Alexis Clements, visit alexisclements.com. That's A-L-E-X-I-S-C-L-E-M-E-N-T-S dot com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. For the Artist Federation, visit theartistfederation.com. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Alexis. It's been really great having you.
Thank you so much.